touch screen's not working. And it's important because one of my songs is not in the book. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. It's time to begin our service this evening. Ah, oh, there it comes. Uh, tonight we'll have three songs, and then Brian Ward has our reading and prayer. Uh, one song, don't look at me like that, just shocked you. <laughs> uh, one more song, and then Chris has our lesson this evening. Our first song uh, is on the overhead only, which is why I was concerned about this screen. <laughs> it's How Great Is Our God. If you would, let's stand for this song, please. How Great Is Our God. be seated. Our next song this evening is number 36, Amazing Grace. Number 36. We'll do the first, second, third, and last verses.
Our next song is number 843, As the Deer Panteth for the Water. After this, Brian will have our reading and prayer. Tonight's scripture reading is from John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John 20, 30 through 31. And truly Jesus did many other things, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Would you bow with me, please? Father in heaven, we're thankful for this day, Father, and we're thankful for this opportunity we've had today to come here and study from your word. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we 
listen to Chris this evening, be with him as he presents the lesson. He may say something that uh, will touch one of us or all of us, Father, during this service. Father, we're thankful for everything you do for us, Father. We're thankful for Jesus and what he means to us, Father. Be with us the rest of this week. Help us to be the examples we need to be in our community. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Song of Invitation will be number 538, Prepare to Meet Thy God. Now, if you would, let's stand. We'll sing number 756, When We All Get to Heaven. Sing a wondrous love of Jesus, sing in mercy and his grace. In the mansion, bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that would be. When we all see Jesus, we'll see. Good evening. So we're starting a new series on Sunday nights starting tonight called Lessons from Animals. And we're going to look at some of the animals in Scripture and see what lessons we can learn from them. Uh, next week we're talking about a lion. This week we're talking about fish. Here's what I'm thinking. Uh, to kind of get everybody involved or as many people as want to be involved, send in creations uh, Minecraft or drawings or photographs of the animal for that week, and I'll show them on uh, on the screen behind me to, uh, that night. Here is a picture of Laney catching a monster catfish out of Joe's uh, pond, I would assume. Uh, that's awesome. And then Abby drew uh, this picture that maybe is a whale shark, <laughs> and uh, and the turtle's going to eat him, I think. So it's going to be kind of fun, I think, to to show some of the creativity. Uh, not just of our kids, but maybe especially of our kids, but also if you have uh, our, some artistic ability or think you have some artistic ability, <laughs> that's the boat I fall in. Um, so 
I would love to show everyone uh, what your drawing is or your creation is. So be sending those in. You can hit those uh, up. You can send those to me on uh, Facebook Messenger or just text them to me if you want to. However you want to get them to me, that'll be fine. I'll throw them up on the board behind me. So tonight we're talking about fish. So grab your Bibles and we're going to talk about three different miracles involving fish from Jesus' life. The first one's here in Luke chapter 5. Miracles uh, served a purpose, right? They weren't just supposed to impress us. Uh, if you've ever been to Vegas or been to a, a, a magician show, you've seen the magician. He'll do some things, a sleight of hand or whatever, and you were looking over here. And he, he made something happen over here, and you sat there, and you thought, wow, that's, that's really impressive. You're not really supposed to take anything away from that magic trick other than, that's cool, that's kind of neat. Miracles serve more of a purpose. They're not magic tricks. These are the real deal. But Jesus also had an idea behind why he did each one of these miracles. He's trying to prove a point. Sometimes the point is simply that people should listen to him, to listen to his teaching. And the miracle serves to validate the one who is speaking, whether it's Paul or Peter or Jesus himself, the miracle serves to validate the one who's teaching because if he can do this thing, you need to listen. You need to pay attention to what he's saying because what he has just done is outside the realm of possibility. God has the definition of a miracle, I guess a working definition. God has intervened in the natural workings of the universe and has changed the way those things function. And so you should not be able to set foot out on an ocean and just say stop and the ocean stop. Right? Um, God has stuck his hand in the middle of the natural way that nature normally works and has said, that's not the way it's going to work this time. He's intervening. And so these miracles serve more of a purpose than just to impress you. Most of them, I think, maybe all of them, serve more of a purpose than just simply to validate what the speaker is saying. You're supposed to, I think, get an understanding from these miracles. You're supposed to take something away. He's trying to teach you something, and he's doing the miracle to do it. So it's more than validation. It's certainly more than just impressing the crowd. You're supposed to learn something from these. And so tonight we're looking at three different occasions where Jesus performed a miracle using a fish. Uh, and then what can we learn from these things about Jesus? So the first one is here in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, isn't that a, an awesome problem to have? Jesus is, is standing beside a lake and the crowd is pressing in around him so much because they want to hear the word. Isn't that exciting? Like that's how revival happens, right? That's how lives are changed. People are pressing in so that they can hear the word, right? We need to be pressing in on Jesus. So we can hear. Uh, and so and that's what's happening on this occasion. And, and he's standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's also, you maybe are more familiar with its other name, the Sea of Galilee. It's talking about the same body of water. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So that's a, that's a little time indicator here. So what time of day is it? It's morning. Uh, the fishermen, in this case, Simon, uh, Peter, and uh, James and John and Andrew and this, these guys had been fishing all night. 
That's normally when people would fish on the, on the Sea of Galilee. You fished at night, and they would throw out these massive nets across uh, either side of the boat, and then they would drag them up, and fish would be hopefully caught in the net. But these guys have been fishing all night, and nothing's happened. We'll get to that. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. The water's kind of working as a natural amphitheater. So Jesus' words are amplified across the water so more people can hear him now than they could when he was simply standing on the, sh the, the shore. So verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. That's some pretty impressive faith already from Simon Peter, right? We know Peter as the guy who just rushes into situations. He's not rushing into this one. Not this time. Uh, maybe this is an anomaly for Peter, but for this time, he says, well, I got some questions, Jesus, but he's not a follower yet. He's not an apostle yet. He hasn't been called yet. That's coming. It's coming in this story, as a matter of fact. This story is going to be the linchpin for Peter following Jesus, but he's not there yet. And so... Jesus says, Simon, why don't you go out into the deep water and throw the nets overboard again and see what you got? Peter's kind of like, I know you're not a fisherman, Jesus. I know you're a carpenter. We're you know, familiar with, with your trade. I happen to be a fisherman, and I've been doing this all night, and we've got nothing. We haven't caught anything. We've been trying all night. We haven't tried anything, but you say so, so we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll throw our nets out into the deep and... We'll just see what happens. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. So the nets are breaking, so they got a new idea. Well, let's put all the fish in the boats. And then the boats start sinking. And then now oh, what are we going to do? <laughs> These fish weren't here 20 minutes ago. So we went, into the we went onto the shore and started fixing our nets and washing them for the next night's work. But now the nets are breaking. These newly mended nets are breaking and the boats are sinking. And so they've got a problem. But notice what an experienced fisherman does here with, with Simon Peter in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So there's something going on there's two things going on at the same time, and you need to kind of see them both to get the picture of what's actually happening on this day on the Sea of Galilee. So they pull in all these fish, and the boats are sinking. They're submerging under the water, and so whoever is in the boat with Peter is calling to James and John, maybe some other boats that are in their area, to come help them carry these fish back to shore. That's what's going on over there, but Peter's not focused on any of that because he is lying now prostrate in front of Jesus. He's not on his hands and knees. He is on his stomach with his face in the, the bow of the ship, pleading with Jesus to leave him alone because he is a sinful man. That's not the last time we're going to hear somebody plead with Jesus to depart from them. In fact, in Mark chapter 5, after Jesus casts out the demon known as Legion, the people of that area are going to come to Jesus and they're going to make this exact same plea, but they're not going to be humble about it. They simply want Jesus to leave because they're afraid of him. Peter's not afraid, but he knows his situation. 
He's a sinful man. And what did Isaiah say when he came into God's presence? Woe is me. I'm undone because I'm, if he were to use Peter's words, a sinful man. And he li he's living in the midst of a sinful people. So I think, I wonder how much, and, and you always do with these, with these stories, how much does Peter really grasp here? He's obviously not understanding completely, certainly not what Isaiah understood about God. There in Isaiah 6, when he mentions this, these same words, Peter's not there yet. He doesn't understand all of that about Jesus, but he does understand something, right? He understands that Jesus is special, that he's unique, that he's powerful, so, so powerful. He understands apparently that he's righteous, that he's holy, that he's no doubt sent from God, or he would not have said these words. So he understands something. We don't understand exactly how much he knows just yet. And really, none of them are going to understand the uniqueness of Jesus until after the resurrection. We'll get to that tonight, too. But he's getting something. He gets that Jesus is special, that his power is incredible, unparalleled. He's unique. So, verse 9. For... He and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of De Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Remember, Simon wants Jesus to leave him because I'm sinful. And righteousness, a righteous God can't be in a relationship with a sinful person. So Peter's connecting dots here. He's connecting dots that he didn't know were dots earlier. He's talking, he's saying more then he really understands. But Jesus says, you're right on. You are a sinful man, but don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. He's changing his job description. Not only does Jesus say, I'm not going to leave you, but you're coming closer into my presence. You're going to be a part of my band of followers now. It's an opportunity it's an opportunity, in fact, that others are granted that they deny. You remember the rich young ruler? He's granted this exact same opportunity, I think. That's what it looks like in Scripture, that Jesus is offering him a seat at the table of the 12 apostles, and he pushes it away. So Peter certainly has an opportunity to push this away here. That's what the people in the Gadarenes do, right? After Jesus casts out legion, the people demand that he leave them alone. And what does he do? He leaves them alone. He's not going to force his will on anybody. And so Peter certainly has a choice here, right? Verse 11 tells you what he does. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. These guys were sold out at this moment in time. They were willing to give up everything. They've got a lucrative fishing business uh, on the Sea of Galilee. These guys are partners. They own multiple boats. And this is a pretty good-sized fishing business because of those multiple boats. And so they are raking in money. This is not some dinky little fishing uh, business that they could take or leave. This is not uh, a side business. This is their livelihood. This is how they support their families. This is how they eat at night. Because their food was not always insured, was never insured. 
And so if they don't work, they don't eat. And so Peter and James and John and Andrew leave everything and follow him. I think one of the things that we can learn from this passage is Jesus' power. It's his power. It's incredible, right? Back during the Civil War, no, <laughs> during the Revolutionary War, uh, George Washington was finding, trying to find a spot to house all of his troops. He's got about 11,000 troops at this point, and Philadelphia has already been occupied by the British. He wants to kind of keep tabs on Philadelphia so he can make his movements wherever he needs to go, but there's not really any good place to go because you're sleeping outside. And sleeping outside near Philadelphia in the winter is not a lot of fun, as I understand it. You guys know how this story ends, of course. The soldiers run out of food. They don't have any blankets. They don't have a place to stay. In fact, Washington asks, tells them, commands them to build these little 12 by 12 shacks and put hay in there as insulation because they don't have enough blankets for everybody. Most of these guys, something like 70, 80 percent of them, don't even have proper footwear. And so, so many of them are going to die. And you're going to see the, the trails of blood as these guys walk away from Valley Forge. Not only that, they're not even getting paid to be there because the money has dried up. So why are they there? George Washington. They're loyal to this guy. He has got some power, charisma, whatever you want to call it. And they are wanting to be close to him at all costs. It's an illustration. It's a bad illustration. But it's an illustration of what's going on here. Peter does not understand all the things that's going on with Jesus. He will get there, but he's not there yet. He doesn't quite grasp it, but he knows that Jesus has power and nothing is going to stop him from being close to Jesus and that power. So one of the things that I need to understand from this, from this uh, miracle, I need to follow him, but I need to do so willingly, right? That power that he's got, he still has today. He still has the power to change lives, to transform people. That's what he says in Scripture, right? He's still working in that capacity to transform lives, to transform people more and more into his image every day, right? I need to follow him and not allow anything, no uncomfortableness, no, uncomfortableness, no loss of relationship, no lack of money, no death to get in the way of following him. I follow whatever the cost it's one of the things we can learn from Luke chapter 5. Jesus' power. Matthew 17 is the next place we're going to go. If you want to flip your Bibles over there, Matthew chapter 17. We're going to look in verse, starting in verse 24. This is another really interesting uh, miracle involving a fish and involving Peter. Each one of our miracles tonight not only involve a fish, but they also involve Peter. Notice in uh, Luke 5, before you get too far away from there, <clears throat> that um, each one of these miracles involve Peter. They also involve a fish, but they're also directed at the apostles. These things aren't directed at the crowds. None, none of these three miracles are directed at the crowds. They're directed specifically at the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, to draw them closer, to teach them something. He's trying to teach them something. Remember, that's the purpose of miracles. He's trying to teach them something. He's trying to validate his teaching. I think he's also 
trying to help them learn something. So what is that something in Matthew chapter 17? Let's read the text. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. This is another instance where Peter just kind of jumps in before he thinks about it. This tax is voluntary. You don't have to pay this thing. There's no consequences. There's no penalties if you don't pay the tax. So why in the world are these two guys, are these, these collectors of the two drachma tax, why are they approaching Peter and asking why if, if his teacher, Jesus, pays the drachma tax? You don't have to pay the drachma tax. It's interesting, right? It feels like, and I think is a, another trap that they're trying to throw up for Jesus. So Peter says, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus is aware of what's happened already. He's aware of this interaction with the, the, the tax collectors, whether he overheard them or if this is a miraculous thing. We're not privy to those details, but he is aware of already what's going on. So Peter doesn't have to run down what's happened. Jesus is already knowing what's going on. And so he says, Simon, what do you think? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or others? Well, you get the point, right? Even though the IRS taxes us, <laughs> Jesus is trying to make a point here that would make sense to most cultures of, the, of antiquity. The sons are free from the tax, right? Verse 26, and when he said, from others, Jesus said to them, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So the shekel is enough. It's a four drachma uh, coin, basically. It's enough to cover both Jesus and Peter. And the miracle here is just wildly crazy, right? So you see that Jesus not only has uh, power over, say, the storms and demons and all, all these big fantastic things, but he can also put a coin, the exact coin that he needs, inside a fish's mouth that Peter is going to be the he's going to be, it's going to be the first fish that Peter catches. That's it's incredible, right? So what should I learn from Matthew chapter seventeen? Can you advance it for me? It's not advancing for some reason. Ooh, that's not good. So what should I learn from Matthew seventeen? Let's see. <laughs> okay. Yep, I'm going to go with this. So what should I learn from Matthew 17? It's Jesus' authority. It's on display. Go back and look at your Bibles. Look at the context of what's going on here. Back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he's been confessed as Messiah by, again, Peter, right? Remember the, the, uh, the interlude, how this all happens. Who do men say that I am? Well, some people say you're this, some people say that. But then he looks at the 12, the one he's been trying to make this point to for so long since they've been with him. Who do you say that I am? Peter jumps out and says, well, we think you're the Christ. We think you're the Messiah that we've been waiting on. So he is attributing to Jesus authority. Authority like no one else on earth has. He's got all authority. It's something Jesus is going to say later on in Matthew, right? In Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority is his. But even if you say in this context, you see it time and time again. 
Look forward in a couple of verses to Matthew 16, verse 24. If you follow Jesus, if you do what he says, you'll end up in heaven. His words are what decides your eternal destiny. That's some serious authority, isn't it? If he, uh, he meets with Moses and Elijah next, even that alone sets him up at the pinnacle of authority. Moses is the lawgiver. Elijah's the head of the prophets. You put Jesus in the mix, anybody else you put in that mix is authoritative. But even after that, remember what Peter says? Oh man, it's good that we're here so we can build a tabernacle. One for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for you. He's putting Jesus on par with these two Old Testament heroes. You remember what the father says? This is my son. You listen to him. Authority, right? Author, all authority. Don't listen to Moses anymore. Elijah's done some amazing things and had some amazing teaching. You don't listen to him. You listen to Jesus. All this is happening just to the disciples. You see his authority. In Matthew 17, verses 19 through 20, he's cast out a demon. His apostles can't cast out. And they've cast out plenty of demons so far. But this one only comes out, Jesus says, by prayer and fasting. We can talk about what that means later, but this is um, showing his authority again. If you look again in uh, chapter 17, he is saying again that he's going to die, but he's got so much authority that not even death can stop him. He's going to say that two times. He says it the first time in Matthew 16, verse 21, and again in 17, 22, and 23. Look at that authority, right? It's on Full display. It's clear. He has authority. And so what should I do about that? What's his authority mean to me? Well, the first thing it should mean to me is that I should pray some awfully big prayers, right? I should pray some big prayers. A lot of people say, well, if he's sovereign, if he knows everything, why should I pray? Because nothing's going to change. If he's not sovereign, then there are some prayers that you could pray that are too big for him. Since he is sovereign, since he is completely authoritative, since he is all-powerful, since all authority has been given to him, there's not a prayer too big for him. He can do anything. So I should be emboldened by that to pray the prayers that are too big for me to accomplish on my own. There is a work set before us that we are that is too big for us to do on our own. He has to be in the middle of it for us to accomplish it. We need to pray those kinds of prayers because of his authority. Second thing is I need to evangelize boldly. There are some people that I guarantee you walk down the street or you see them uh, in Walmart or you see them somewhere and you think, that person is just too far away from God. Maybe you've seen them on YouTube and they're an atheist and they're having debates and discussions. And You ever seen Bill and I talk about uh, creation? Right? Go back home and Google that, and I'll make you mad. Um, some of these people are so far away from God, you think there's just no way that they can come to Him. Because He has all authority, I should evangelize boldly, because anybody can come to Him. His rankest offender, the one who would spit in His face and do everything in His power, to stop God's kingdom, can come to him. As a matter of fact, he already has. His name was Saul, right? 
we should evangelize boldly because God has this kind of authority. Third one, very quickly, John 21, verses 1 through 3. This is uh, just one of the most interesting stories to me. I love John's gospel. Um, and this story, uh, as he caps off everything that's going on in, in his gospel, really sets uh, everything in position, I guess. John 21, he says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It's the Sea of Galilee, again. And this one's featuring Peter again. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, there he is. Thomas called the twin. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee. And two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got in a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Again, they're fishing at night. Hmm. <coughs> So they're fishing at night again, and they haven't called anything yet again. This is after Jesus' death. He's appeared to the disciples on a couple of occasions, uh, but it's been mysterious stuff. So he's appeared to them behind locked doors and things like that. He's walking through walls, um, and, and he's appeared to Thomas, I, I'm assuming by this point, and allowed him to put his fingers in the nail wounds and the spear wound. But the disciples, the apostles, just seem... Like they're unfettered. Uh, they don't have anything tying them to him anymore. They're, they're confused. And so they go back to something that they understand. So they go back fishing. Just as day was breaking in verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. So he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Does that story sound familiar? It's almost exactly what happened in Luke 5, isn't it? And so it's no surprise that one of the disciples, we think John, verse 7, puts two and two together and figures out that it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Why do they do that? Because he's already got fish broiling. He's already got fish cooking. Isn't that interesting? Why does he tell them to bring some fish up? I don't know. You tell me. Verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. He's taking care of the net this time. He's providing for them. In case they remembered Luke 5, which I'm sure they would have, he's providing for them now. They thought that they were unfettered. They thought they were uh, disconnected from him. He says, no, no, I've had you. I had you when I was on the cross. I've got you now. I'm going to have you forever. I've got your back. I will take care of you. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, so, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The thing we can learn from this story is his resurrection was real. His resurrection was real. Uh, before this, like we say, he's, he's passing through locked doors, and his body, uh, you can touch it, but... It's also 
ephemeral, like it, it can go through stuff, like locked doors. And so you, you don't really, is he a ghost? Is he not? I don't know. Well, here he's definitely not a ghost because he's eating fish and bread. And also, by the by, he didn't need you to fix the fish or bread, even though he gave you 153 of them. He already had it going on the coals for you. He's taking care of you. So what does the resurrection mean to me? Well, Paul make the argument in 1 Corinthians 15 that it means everything. Your faith is futile if he's not raised. We're the dumbest people around if he's not raised because you've made sacrifices for him. People in the first century were dying for him. That's coming back, right? The, the sacrifices necessary for, to, to continue in continue being his people as coming back. The resurrection confirms that everything that he said is true. All the promises, he will fulfill those things. Everything he promised is true, including salvation, including heaven, including being with you every step of the way. And so tonight, if you need salvation, we would love to sit down with you and study the Bible about that topic. If you need the prayers of this congregation to be who God would have you to be, won't you come tonight as we stand and sing? Back up a couple slides, guys. We're going. It's 538. Yeah, there we go. That was like going right there.
Good evening, church family. A couple announcements before we are dismissed. As a reminder to the middle school and high school, uh, there will be a devotional at the Knapp's house uh, after this evening's services. Also, we'll be taking the bus to Flatwoods for their gospel meeting. The bus will be leaving at 6 o'clock on Tuesday. Love to have you come with us. Also, uh, next Sunday will be the deacons meeting at 5 o'clock. Um, if anyone is needing uh, canning jars, please see Connie Miller and Sandy Galloway. Um, also, if uh, you can help out cutting grass this month, uh, please sign up on the foyer board. And, um, and if you want to help out feeding the Fairland soccer team Monday at 7.30, we'd love to have you uh, be here to help with that. Remember, continue to keep in our prayers, uh, Chad's mom and dad. Also, Merrill, continue to keep Jennifer Baker in your prayers and Jim Haney. Uh, that's all the announcements I have. If you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been prepared in the conference room. You may leave and do that now. We will sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Our last song this evening is number 801, America the Beautiful. With it being 9-11, I just thought it was appropriate. America the Beautiful. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above
pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come here and worship you today. And thank you for uh, Chris and his lesson. And let us take it to our jobs and the school and just teach others about you, Lord. And be with the elders and the deacons as they make choices for our congregation, Lord. And just let them do it according to your will. Be with those who are sick and in need of you and just watch over them and give people safe travels back to their homes tonight. Most importantly, thank you for your son and his death on the cross for our sins. Christ, I pray. Amen.